Okay, hello. We haven't done a podcast in a while because we're busy and stuff. Um, and as I like to preface, it's summer vacation and kids are home and being loud and we're not in like a studio. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. We're not in a studio and here we are. Here we are. Okay, so today we're talking about the Pogue. Ooh. Yep. And I am going to ask Spencer some questions about it and we'll go from there so the first thing i'm going to answer which is why is it called a pogue and i have a nice two sentence answer from the watch wikipedia which is in 1973 astronaut and former thunderbird pilot colonel william pogue carried his personal seiko 6139 into space on the skylab 4 mission this yellow dialed watch accompanied an official issue omega speedmaster but he preferred the speed timer feature of the seiko to time engine burns yeah, that's what he used it for. Well, the, to clarify, that actually isn't correct. What, what? I Well, it's sort of correct. What, what Pogue himself said is that he was going through training for the for the mission. Like, they were going through, like, simulator burns and stuff like this, but he had not been issued his Omega yet. So what he did is he went down to the Air Force Base PX, and he put one of these on layaway, and he, he got it like four payments, I think, and then it was all finished and it was his. And he said he used it to time engine burns in the simulator. Oh, well, <clears throat> boo. Problem with Pogues is that there's all this half information and misinformation and all this stuff that sort of bubbles up and then people trade the information around and it's not necessarily correct. Like there's some guy in Italy who's... who's uh, who's uh, putting himself up as the ultimate Pogue authority where he's clearly cribbed stuff from other sources and he's just flat out wrong on a lot of stuff. It's just silly. People always like to say, oh, I, but here's, here's what's really happening. <laughs> yeah, but you kind of just did that. I know, but, you know, <laughs> I, I haven't yet. The thing is, I believe in the scientific method, which is that we put forth an idea, which, and if it's right, then it's right, and if it's wrong, then we deserve correction, and if it's corrected and we all agree, then we move forward. Okay. So when were the 6139s released? Uh, the 6139s were first, uh, they were produced starting, I think the earliest ones I've seen were from February 1969, February, March. They didn't start selling them, I think, until like June. So they had a few months of production kicking up before they actually opened the doors and started selling them. Okay. How long did it go till? The latest 6139 I've ever seen have been from like 1979, but those are really, that's like really, really at the, I'm sorry, 19, no, yeah, like 1979, about the, the something, something like, they, is that right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's correct, 79, because um, I, I go back and forth and getting it confused with the, you know, the diver dates too, but yeah, about 79 is about the last. Okay. What are the movement numbers of a 6139 and what makes them different? Uh, there's only two. There's the A variant and the B variant. And really the only, the, there are, the main differences is that the, the A was, the A movement was much, was more lightly built. The train bridge was thinner. It wasn't really reinforced. The, um, the chronograph wheel especially was much more lightly built, and my theory is that they were more prone to failure. Um, that's the only reason I can think of for the changes that they made. Uh, they also, they changed um, the hammer 
the hammer is sort of this triangular affair and it has two faces on it because it resets the the, the lower register and the main uh, sweep at the same time. And if those faces wear unevenly or if the heart cams on either of those wheels wear, then they come out of sync and you have it where it's like one face is touching the hammer and the other face, it's got some slop. And there's no real easy way to deal with that with an A. You have to actually pull the movement apart. You have to pull the hammer. You have to ever so very finely file down one of the two faces and put it back together and see how it acts. Whereas in the B, they changed it so that that part is on an eccentric post and you just put a screwdriver in and crank it around. So how long was the A used? Um, well, the Pogue is actually a really good, the Pogue model is a really good indicator of that. The first Pogues came out in February 1971 and they still used the A. Uh, so February, March 1981, a Pogue should have an 81? A. 81? I'm sorry, 71, <laughs> 71, sorry. 71, so uh, yeah, so March, February, March 1971, the Pogues should still have A movements. But then in March, in April, I'm sorry, in April, they went to the B. And so that's a real good indicator of, of, of when that switchover so happened. So the one I'm holding is a B? Well, when's the date? What's the serial on it? Um, 71 November. Yep. You got it. Oh my goodness. So that's a, that's a B. Oh. Pogues was 71 September. Okay. Um... Are there any similar movements from different brands? Uh, Citizens 8100 was in the same line visually, but I mean, in terms of its internal tech, it was different. I wish I could speak more about the internal tech, but I've never ripped one apart. We have one. It's in the parts drawers, but I've, I've never honestly pulled it apart. They're a little small for me, so I've never really thought much about them. Uh, I just don't wear them. I'm reading... Though now I don't trust this Wikipedia. Well, you know. Okay, well, it says similar movements from a Zenith. I'm guessing. Zen oh, Zenith, Zenith. Well, Zenith is TVs. I don't know. Um, the Chronomatic and Lamania 5100 and a Valju 7750. Well, I mean, those are chronograph movements, but they're not the same thing. They're not a single register chronograph. Well, what the heck is this? He's just throwing out stuff. No, if, you're, it, if you're talking about like what is another single register? It's this website. It's the Watch Wiki. Sorry, he's reading it. He's they are not notably similar movements from Zenith and the Chronomatic and the Lamania Fifty One Hundred and Valley Jew Seven Seven Five Zero are utterly different uh -oh. than the than the Sixty One Never use the Watch Wiki to learn things. Well, the I only guess. thing though about the Lamania Fifty One Hundred is that it also has clutches in it. That's the only thing that I would say is similar. But other than that, technologically, they're absolutely different. Oh, okay. Um, how can you tell if it's authentic and what makes it different, it being a Pogue, different from a regular 6139? Well, the, the, the thing with Pogue, we can look at, we have pictures of Pogue's actual watch. We know what it looks like. The only information we're missing is a photograph of the case back, but we know the serial number and we know what the front of the watch looks like. We know that he bought it in the United States and we know what models of gold 6139 dial watches fit that thing, fit that description, that layout here in the United States. It's a 6139-6005. Underneath this, the applied Seiko logo, all it says is automatic, not chronograph automatic. It just says automatic. And that's a North American only thing. Also, above the SUA symbol, which is between the lower subregister and the main hand stack, it also has the notation 17J, 17 joules. 
And that again is a North American thing. That's what Pogue's dial looks like. So Pogue bought his watch in North America. It would be a North American variant. There was no, the only gold North American variant period was a 6139-6005. The other main North American variant, which is 6139-6009, was blue dial only. It, it, that's that's just that's the way it is. Plus, what about was, the silvers? Uh, I've never the silvers as all the silvers I've seen were sixty one thirty nine six thousand twos, and they all say chronograph automatic. Oh. They follow the same dial layout as the six thousand twos, which is like Southeast Asia, Australia, things like that. Okay. Uh, so what bracelet goes on? It's the H link, right? Yeah, it's the standard standard Seiko made uh, H link. Do you think that looks best on it? I, I really like the H-Link. I'm super yeah, like fond it of too. it because it's a straight H-Link and it's really, visually it works very well with the watch. It emphasizes its curves and all of it's sort of the unique way the head of the watch is laid out. Uh, it's very comfortable to wear. I really like the H-Link. The Australasian ones, like the silver dials and stuff like that, they came on this like president bracelet. I have no idea what that is. Yeah, it's sort of a solid oval link thing. It's actually, in some ways, it looks like that Omega bracelet, that the, the, the wider one, except mm -hmm. that it's straight. Um, but the end links are kind of weird and they're rattly and it's really, it's a, it's a really loose design. And so the, the watches tend to move around a lot more. This sits a little more cleanly and tightly on the wrist. Okay. Um, what's the deal with the multifunction crown? I was reading something about it and I figured I'd just ask you rather than continue reading. It's not really a multifunction crown. I mean, it, okay, fine. It has a couple of functions. You can set the time. Uh, which is always useful. Uh, <laughs> you, you can um, you, you turn the crown with the turning the crown in the normal position will rotate the indicator ring. Mm -hmm. And also, if you you can you quick set the day and date by pushing the crown in. So I was reading that this was like the first watch that did that all that stuff or something. Well, Seiko was always all about push to for pushing quick set. I mean, that was kind of one of the things. The internal indicator ring. That was done, I mean, that's sort of actually a, sort of a, compre a super compressor design, uh, which, you know, that's a Swiss thing where they had an internal bezel as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I know that every part for Seiko is hard to find, but what's the hardest one for these to find? Uh, for a long time, the, the replacement crown and stem parts works extraordinarily hard to find, but then people have started making them aftermarket. Also, large amounts of, of original parts have been found in England. The problem now then, the worst is the chronograph wheel, which is part okay. 888-612 for, uh, for the B movement or 888-610 for the A movement. If you find a chronograph wheel, I mean, you can find them, but they're usually like 150 bucks now. If you find them for hundred bucks or less, and you, I would buy one and just put it aside because when the, when you when and if your chronograph wheel ever fails, the watch will cease to be um, a chronograph. Basically, I mean it'll count up to fifty eight seconds, but that's it. Hmm. Okay. The nice thing is though is that even if it fails completely, the watch will happily perform as a um, as a regular timekeeper. It just really won't be a chronograph anymore. Mm, sorry, our clock is thinging, and also I apologize for my children screaming. If you could hear that. Anyway, um, how bad is the bezel fade on it? Like, I kind of remember seeing them without the red on it. 
sometimes it fades too much oh well i mean it, it the bezels will on the yellows they'll fade to a slightly lighter yellow and then they'll sort of they'll start to fade towards a oh, white I mean the, this thing oh that that, 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 that they, those are really hard uh, so you're talking about the outer the, the outer insert with the with the tack with the, the tachymeter pep, the gate. pepsi yeah, yeah yeah the pepsi it's it's anodization seiko anodized that that onto aluminum what in god's name does that even mean it's it's a kind of it's a kind of it's it's a way to put color on it it's yeah. a way to finish it and turn it to color so it's it's a it's it's stuff that's bonded directly to the metal and seiko's anodized finishes are extraordinarily durable they're very very durable you have to really work to hurt them the only time i really saw one that was really crazy faded uh, it belonged to the original owner's father who worked in a chemical factory his entire oh. life. Okay. Yeah, but that's... Uh, other than that, you have to whack him to really hurt that, that insert. Okay. Um, that was my last question. So that, You said it was going to be super long, and it's only 13 minutes. Oh, no, there was a couple, there was a couple other questions. Was, that I was there? I'm kind of sleepy. Oh, it's okay. So. It's not a big deal. I mean, the thing with the Pogues is that... People have questions about how do you tell if it's original? How do you tell if it's not original? That's what I've noticed a lot online. And then somebody said, people who knows how to tell it are cagey. I'm like, you tell people that all, the time. all the time. Because <laughs> the last thing I ever want to do is have somebody drop a bunch of money because some seller they don't know says, oh, this is a great, perfect condition Pogue. And it's kind of shiny. And they don't really know what they're looking at. Because um, there's good you know, which is wearable and original and that's fine. And then there's like that condition like the one you're holding, which is during your museum quality, but very few people are going to see that. The most important thing with any Pogue is, man, don't pull the trigger without knowing what you're looking for, what you're talking about. And you about. can always send Spencer an email and Absolutely, ask him. absolutely. And I also, we have a video on the channel uh, about the True Pogue Spotter's Guide. And I talk about the things that are important. And I show every watch that I, any watch that comes out of here is exactly what I say it is. If I say it's original and if I say it's whatever, the, believe me that what I'm telling you is true. So if you look at that video, that spotter's guide, you can really look closely and see what makes something real, what the things are that are important to look at. You know, with a Pogue, the gold dials are, are um, unique in a way that they, they patina in a way that no other 6139 dial does. They get this, they have this really thin clear coat on the top. And if it's thin enough in spots, oxygen can get through and then the metal underlayment will turn this sort of blackish chocolate brown. It's a patina thing. There isn't a darn thing to do about it. They're not scratches. But the gold dials are the only ones that do it. And so you have to look at them and understand, you know, uh, you know what, what you're looking at in terms of how much how much of that marking it has, how the loom looks, how the top of the markers look. How, how about the cases? Uh, well, the cases are the cases. Um, I, I mean, know, but it, you scream about people refinishing them. Well, yeah, well, what you do is you kind of do a crude hand polish on the side. What they do is then, and then what the real cheaters do is you, you get like a one of those sanding blocks, a really rough sanding block, and mm -hmm. you cut up a hole in it the same size as the bezel, and you push the case into that, and you turn it, and you turn it, turn it, and it'll kind of crudely rebrush the top. And But that's not how they were manufactured. Seiko uses Zeratsu polishing, which is a completely different piece of business, and it's impossible to mistake the sort of the hatchiness and thickness of the original top brushing with what anybody else would do. But with Seiko, when you're looking at cases, you always look at the edges and the consistency of the of the brushed surfaces. But if it's got those sharp edges and the planes, the flat areas are flat, 
and then you're pretty good. But if it looks like it's a, you know, like it's a lollipop that somebody sucked on for a little bit, then it's been repolished. And there's almost no one in the world. There's a couple. There's one guy in like Poland who can completely remanufacture the cases. His stuff is amazing. I had a guy that I was working with and he was doing really well for us, but then he's retired and he vanished. I, I don't know what happened to him. So it's just tough. If you have my best piece of advice for buying watches is, or, or having servicing work done or paying to have something restored or whatever, when in doubt, don't. If you have any hesitations, if you really have a question mark or any little nagging concern in the back of your head, don't do it. Don't pull the trigger. The world is full of vintage Seikos. Make sure if you're going to spend money on one, you want to spend the, 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 the smartest money you can, which is to buy the best example that you can verify to your own satisfaction is correct. And I guess, how much are they worth? Well, they're, they're going up a lot in value. A decent original Pogue now unrestored, they're going to be in the uh, well above the 2000 range easily. Uh, That's funny. When I was reading some posts on different websites from 2015, it said costs a few hundred dollars to a thousand for a really good example. Yeah, no, they're, yeah. they're, they're climbing in value sharply because the thing is, this is one of the usual deals where like the, the Rolex guys and the big collectors are in there because you start getting this confluence of different collectors, not just people who collect Seiko now, but people who collect NASA stuff, people who collect space memorabilia, people who generally like chronographs, Rolex guys with a lot of money who are trying to branch into another area because Rolex is so, so feverish in terms of their prices, you know, and so it, it pumps up all the Seiko prices. I mean, the problem is, is that if, if, if I have something that's this nice, like that pogue you're holding, I have to not only, if I'm going to sell it, I have to not only account for how much they're worth now, but how much they're going to be worth in, in future because they're only going up in value. Mm -hmm. People keep predicting the, the death of the, of, the, of the vintage watch market and I haven't seen it yet. They mm -hmm. just keep going up. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they've been, I mean, but they've been going up for as long as I've been aware of them. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking, you know, well over a decade now, they've been steadily rising in value. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of making sure that you invest in the right piece because there's going to be a lot of people out there trying to make a killing. Okay. Anyway, that's about it. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so we added another like five minutes. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I always like talking pogs, and if you have any questions about them or you want to know what they look like or what good looks like, feel free to shoot me a line. Okay, goodbye. Bye-bye. Cool,